us today. Congregation of our Lord Jesus Christ, if I were to ask all of you what it is that you could use right now, I'm sure with a, a crowd of this size, we'd have a lot of different answers, a variety of answers to that. And some of that might have to do with, uh, as you would ask me maybe in turn, well, what do you mean by right now? Do you mean right now at this service? What could I use? Well, I could use something inspirational from the word of the Lord. But if right now is after the service, it may mean that uh, you're thinking, you know, I could sure use a good visit from one of my Christian friends. Or I could use something to drink, something to eat. Or it could be that uh, you might be thinking that later on in the day, what I could use is a good nap, or I could use a good sleep later on today because it's been a hard week and I've got a lot ahead of me. It might mean the support of others or the prayers of God's people. It could mean a lot of things during your week. It could be that you're looking for wisdom. It could be that you're looking for insight. You're looking for better health. You might be looking for money you can have to pay off something or a dependable vehicle because it hasn't been. Safety through your travels. Safety through the night, safety through the day. Your answers could be a variety of kinds. Well, we confess that in Jesus Christ, we have all that we need for our salvation. We also confess when we're Christians that we believe that the Bible is sufficient for us when it comes to matters of what we believe when it comes to salvation or, or the teachings that we're to follow or or the direction that we need for life. One thing that we can say about this passage that's in front of us is that what is needed on this side of glory is what Jesus provides. That's, that's something for sure that for which you, from which uh, this passage you could glean from that. He provides much. That's what you see here. We sing that the benefits that we in Christ possess are vast. And among those are things that are mentioned in our passage here. Christ's long-suffering or his patience with us. The compassion of Christ. But then also the instruction of Christ. And if you think about it, in your life or in my life, if we're honest with ourselves and if the spirits at work in us those are things that you cherish, aren't they? The patience of Christ, the long-suffering of Christ, the instruction of Christ for your life. Well, we're going to focus on those a bit this morning. Both Christ in this encounter, and we're going to be looking at, first of all, his patience or his long-suffering. If you look at Christ here, in, in this encounter with the other nine disciples, because he's coming down the mountain with Peter, James, and John, so now you're going to have all 12. But when you look at him, and you look at us, what we have going on here is something in common. 
because as Jesus is coming down the mountain, and at this particular time in redemptive history, he's on this side of glory, and so are we. And that's a point of connection that we have with this passage. This is where we can relate. Now we know that Christ has gone to glory. That's what we confess as Christians anyway. And that his glory has been made evident in his resurrection, in his ascension, in his seating at the right hand of God. And we know in that way that we live in a dissimilarity with Jesus, right? Between the Christ of glory and where we are. Because we're on this side of glory. But in this passage, at that time, we have a Christ who comes down from the glories of the mountain. And he's coming back to the shadows of those situations which contrasted to his transfiguration, right? That change of appearance of his on the mountain. It contrasts with those glories that he experienced and the glories that awaited him. After all, he needed to speak to the disciples again, as we saw in this passage, about the humiliations that he must yet face. He's in that situation. Now, sometimes we speak about letdowns that we experience, either because things don't pan out the way we had hoped they would, or when we go from a, a pleasant experience to, the, to a not-so-pleasant experience in our lives. And that letdown, as you know and as I know, can be discouraging. It can cause tears to flow. It can cause pain to be experienced. And that's kind of a, there's a kind of letdown here for Jesus. It's part of the humiliation that he has to face as the one who would be God with his people, as Matthew would speak about him. God with us. With us is God. Emmanuel. The way that the book of Matthew is bracketed, right? When he comes in his birth and his humiliation, and as he leaves in his exaltation, we hear of him being prophesied as that one who would be Emmanuel as he was born. And then we hear about him saying to us that he will be with us always to the close of the age in his exaltation. Well, in his humiliation, he faces these kinds of condensation or condescensions like this one as being Emmanuel, as being with his people. It's a part of the contrast between the glories that awaited him and the glories that he experienced on the one hand, and the humiliations that he had to endure on the other hand in between. And what we see in the midst of that is the patience, is the long-suffering that Jesus has to, must express as he deals, as he says, with the faithlessness and the sinfulness that is found down the mountain. Oh, faithless and twisted generation, how long am I to be with you? Jesus is putting up 
He's putting up with the annoyance of faithlessness and unbelief. And faithlessness and unbelief are annoying. Now, it's not the first time that we see this kind of episode in Scripture. If you think back in your uh, Sunday school lessons and you think back in, in reading your Old Testaments, uh, you'll remember, of course, and we talked about this in previous weeks, about how Moses, when he went to go get the Ten Commandments in Exodus, particularly in, in Exodus uh, 24, we hear about his call to go up the mountain, and he goes up also with the elders of the church, but initially, but he goes up the mountain and he appears in the presence of God's glory. And you can read about that more in Exodus 24, if you want something to read for devotions for Sunday dinner. But yet, as was the case with Jesus here, Moses in Exodus 32 comes down from the mountain of glory only to encounter the darkness and corruption of the unbelief of those who themselves had seen the glory of the Lord from afar like a consuming fire. Because what Moses, of course, is coming down to, as even God says, go down the mountain, what is he going to see? He's going to see the golden calf incident where Aaron tells everybody, yeah, we recognize that we don't see Moses and we don't see our God. Just give me some gold and we'll make a golden calf. And so Moses comes down to see that. And in both the Exodus account and in the account of Matthew, we see the long-suffering, the patience of the divine coming through. Because we read, when you're looking at uh, Exodus 32, we, we hear about God saying that he's going to wipe out Israel for this. But then, while he was about to do that, wipe out the faithless and crooked generation that turned from him, he suffered long for the sake of the mediation of Moses, who was a picture of the Christ to come. And in Exodus 32, verse uh, that is something I will read, is from Exodus 32, uh, verse 14. Uh, we hear that uh, the Lord, after, after Moses had uh, interceded, the Lord relented from the disaster that he had spoken of bringing on his people. He was long-suffering. So Christ suffers long as well in our passage today. Was, was Christ annoyed? Yes. Was Christ disappointed? Yes. Did it pain the one who came down from the heavenly glory to see such earthly unbelief? Yes, it did. It's annoying. It's frustrating. It pains him. Was he indignant to, to see the impoverishment of faith after enjoying the fullness of glory for a while? Was this a letdown of sorts? Of course. What this does is it displays this stark contrast, this stark difference between him who's worthy of glory and those who were not. The difference between the righteous one and the unrighteous one. Or the unrighteous. That's what we see here. 
The words, the words faithless and crooked generations are words that remind us of the song of Moses. In Deuteronomy 32, verse 5, and, and Deuteronomy 32, uh, verse 20. I, I'll read those a moment as well. From Deuteronomy 32, verse 5. If you want to look at that, you may, certainly. Um, Deuteronomy 32, verse 5 says, uh, they have dealt corruptly with him, that is with God. They are no longer his children because they are blemished. They are a crooked and twisted generation. And then in verse 20 it says, and he said, I'll hide my face from them. I will see what their end will be for they are a perverse generation, children in whom is no faithfulness. The Apostle Paul would speak about in Philippians 2 verse 15, he calls there to believers in Jesus to shine as light in a dark world, which is part of a crooked and perverse generation. Light on the one hand again, darkness on the other. And it's the light that Christ brings to a dark world that we need on this side of glory. But do you notice that instead of consuming us with his glory. God comes to us for the sake and in the person of Jesus Christ with his long suffering, his patience. And, you know, initially that is what Moses saw in the glory of God. In Exodus 34, verse 6, the glory that Moses saw was Captioned with this, the Lord, the Lord God, compassionate, gracious, slow to anger, abounding in loving kindness and truth, who keeps loving kindness for thousands, who forgives iniquity and, thanks, and transgression and sin. He who is glorious dwells with us who are not as Emmanuel so that we might know the light of his glory. And we can be light. It doesn't consume us. He enlightens us. And how thankful we must be that that's the way that the glorious God continues to deal with us when we've known Christ. He's long-suffering with us. Sinners though we are, molding making us after his will. He's long-suffering with us, sinners though we are, forgiving us through the blood of Jesus. He's long-suffering with a dark world so that none that of those who belong to him in Christ will be lost, even though many people they could care less about Christ. He puts up with us that way. And of course, no greater sign of that is than what you find with the long suffering that Christ went through on our behalf on the cross. Now, of course, that's not a long suffering that we should test. Right? The, the, the glory that, that passed by Moses also said, yet he will by no means leave the guilty unpunished. Visiting the iniquity of fathers on the children and on the grandchildren to the third and fourth generations. We must not spit in the face of the long-suffering God, nor his Christ, and, and do that with a life of, of unbelief 
and with a life of uh, disobedience that way. We must appreciate his long suffering. We really, you know, these are moments here like we have now is to give us an opportunity to focus on his long suffering with us so that we might, as we think about that, we might find ourselves to be that way with other people. We might be long-suffering with others around us so that we might live not with vengeance or bitterness in our hearts towards others, but with kindness. Our own patience with others is, after all, the fruit of Christ's Spirit at work in us. And we look in our own lives and say, are we that kind of people? That's our calling. Uh, Long-suffering might also be seen as we await with patience how God is going to deal with us in whatever situation you might find yourself right now. You know, as he molds you, as he makes you after his will, and to be patient with that as he's doing. That's our calling. When we think about that one, that, that one of the things that we truly need on this side of glory is the long suffering of Christ for us. We need that. We also, of course, need to know his compassion on this side of glory. So the, the disciples tried to cast out a demon that was plaguing an epileptic son and uh, of the father who seeks Jesus' mercy. Lord, have mercy on my son. Have mercy on my son. They were unable to do that. Right? They were unable to provide the mercy that, that the Savior could provide. Now, of course, Jesus isn't happy with the lack of faith that the disciples had shown. But one of the things that cannot be missed in this passage, and that's important for us as we're dealing with our own situations on this side of glory, is that while the disciples were found failing, when it came to the mercy that the father of the son sought, Jesus has never found that way. He's never found wanting in mercy. And there would seem to be at least two things to be said about that compassion of Jesus that way that are both necessary for us on this side of glory. For one thing, when it comes to the mercy of the Lord Jesus in a spiritual sense, you can always count on it through faith in him. It can never fail to cover your sin. It can never fail to cover your sinfulness. It's never too small to cover the greatest of your sins. And there's tremendous comfort in that when we don't underestimate the mercy of Christ. But what's equally true, and a truth that builds on the first, is that Jesus also never fails in covering us with compassion during those times in which we live on this side of glory, that nothing in all creation can separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus. Such compassion is needed when we're on this side of glory. Make no mistake about it. When, when we're on the other side of glory, that compassion is full blossom. But on this side of glory, we come to see 
as well that Christ's compassion never fails. Do we ever see it fail? Was he ever kept from being able to overcome the forces of evil and the effects of sin? This passage reminds us never. This person was healed instantly. There was, there was no doubt of this change that he was able to bring. He would say that we'd have trouble in this world. This is on this side of glory. But that we should take heart because he's the one who overcomes the world. That compassion prevailed in our passage. Have mercy on me, Jesus. He died. And he has it in our passage amid the annoying, distressful, distasteful ways of a crooked and perverse generation. His glory shone over that darkness. His compassion outshone the perversion. And we know it's out there, right? It's in the world. It's in the flesh. It's in the devil. But he outshines it. We might find people to fail us. They disappoint us. We thought better of them. And we even sing when other helpers fail and comforts flee. O thou that changest not, abide with me. Emmanuel, be with us. God be with us in Christ. We may not always feel like his compassion is there. But that doesn't change the fact that it is. Because Jesus Christ remains the same yesterday, today, and forever. His compassion will not fail you. And that's not a promise for wealth. And that's not a promise for, for health that make you live 2,000 years on this earth. But that is the promise that he concludes this gospel with, that he will be with you always as Emmanuel until the close of the age. And you can count on that. That's a compassion that will never fail you. It's willing, it's able. It's the kind of compassion that we need on this side of glory, to be sure. And we also need his instruction on this side of glory. That's the last point here. It's easy to think that we don't need his counsel. You know, we, you know, we don't need to open our Bibles when we're talking about how we're going to do things. We, in fact, like to talk quicker than... We want to listen to his word by nature, right? It's the way of the sinful nature. I'll be quick to speak and slow to listen rather than quick to listen and slow to speak. But we're left to our spiritual impoverishment if we don't sense a need for his counsel, his wisdom on this side of glory. The disciples were wondering why they couldn't drive out the demons, and it wasn't because they didn't have confidence to do it. They had plenty of confidence. The problem was that their confidence was more in themselves and their ability to control the power of God. Because little faith, when Jesus is saying here, you have little faith, that, that's, 
That's like saying, is really no faith at all. Because it's not directed in the right place. It shows in the form of doubt and fear and a lack of trust and a, and a, and a misunderstanding of Christ's counsel. As Matthew even writes about it. Their, their lack of faith is seen in their inability to see the necessity of the cross. That's where you see it especially. And the subsequent joy of the resurrection. Which is why the end of our passage ends not in joy for the disciples, but grief. They're greatly distressed because they're not taking the counsel of Christ. Their lack of faith is seen regarding the epileptic, especially because they didn't seek the help of the Father in heaven. They say, why couldn't we cast it out? Because of your little faith. For truly I say to you, if you have faith like a mustard seed, you'll say to this mountain, move from here to there, and it will move and nothing will be uh, impossible for you. And then, yeah, if you notice, it says some in, uh, manuscripts insert verse 21, but this kind never comes out except by prayer and fasting. You know, they took for granted that they could do the things that they had done before in chapter 10. It was a false faith. The need is not for a giant faith. That's not the problem. I mean, you can have faith like a mustard seed, it said. The need for a true faith. To accomplish the things the Lord would have us accomplish. When we have such a prayerful and true faith that way, then nothing is impossible for us. We can move mountains. And the idea, of course, is misunderstood easily. Nothing is impossible would mean to seem to say that, well, nothing that we want should be impossible for us. And that's when we must be retaught how to pray. It's the prayer of the Lord that we are to pray, not the prayer that we want to pray. Back in Matthew 6, Lord, teach us how to pray. Well, this is how you ought to pray. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name, and so on. Nothing's impossible in prayer. We can do all things through him who gives us strength, as long as what we want is what God wants. Nothing's impossible if we pray in harmony with his word. Nothing's impossible if we pray subservient to his will. Nothing's impossible if we're more interested in his name and his kingdom, and his will, and not our own. And that's the kind of instruction that we need on this side of glory. So that our faith won't be impoverished. It'll be the kind of faith that believes that for the sake of Jesus Christ, God can do exceedingly more than all that we can ask or imagine. And by that power will enable us to do all things in accordance with his will. How thankful we can be that while we live on this side of glory, we don't have to live life like it's one gigantic big letdown. 
Because while we live amid a crooked and perverse generation, and while we are anything but perfect ourselves, and apart from the grace of God, there go we, we don't have to despair because of the grace of God. We don't need to despair when we remember these things, right? The long-suffering of Christ, the compassion of Christ, and the instruction of Christ. Because in all of these things, and that's the main thing to look at in this passage, in all of these things, he'll never fail us. He'll never fail us. Not in his patience, not in his compassion, and not in his instruction. And that's what we need on this side of glory. That's what you need. That's what I need. And isn't it good news for us to know that through faith in the crucified and risen Lord, that that is exactly what you receive. The patience of Christ, the compassion of Christ, and the instruction. Of Christ. Amen. Let's take a moment.